Alright everyone, welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. Before we begin for the evening, as always, some safety tips. Lock your doors, close your windows, cover your mirrors, throw down a salt circle, get some tobacco in the air, and uh, buckle up for a wild ride. We are back with Owen Cyclops to talk about his new release, Babyology. Yeah, man, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I would wager that a good portion of my audience is already familiar with you. But for those that aren't, just in brief, what's your whole shtick? What's your deal? What do you do? And uh, why am I such a big fan? (laughs) Thanks, man. Um, Yeah, so I'm an illustrator. I'm an artist. I run a little illustration studio here. And I suppose partially I'm here because I am a general strange things enthusiast. Uh, But to be more specific, religion, weird American stuff, paranormal stuff, more in the theological department and how theology intersects with those things. That's my whole world. And yeah, I run a little art studio out here. Uh, I do comics and larger graphic design projects. And that's my whole wheelhouse, basically. Some of those comics, which have gone viral enough to escape the Twitter sphere, I have had people, not quite normies, but normie-adjacent folks, show me your comic strips before. You know, not quite in the wild, in social settings, but uh, some of your work's got quite a bit of reach, man. That's awesome, man. That's cool. Yeah, it's been crazy. It's been a few years now. The coolest one for me is I was in Whole Foods and someone came up to me. And they saw my shirt. I made make a lot of shirts. I used to make more. I was wearing one and they came up and they were like, oh, is that an Owen Cyclops shirt? And I was so blindsided. I really didn't know what to say. <laughs> Obviously, I'm like totally undercover. So I was like, yeah, he's my friend. And then I was like, uh, it's kind of a lie, but like maybe true in like a metaphysical sense. And then I had a weird moment walking out where I was like, you know, if you're really familiar with the comics and you saw me with my son and my wife, you might be able to piece it together. Uh, but yeah, it's awesome, man. Things have been going well, so that's really cool for me. So that uh, wife and son really takes us right into the core of it. I have sitting on my desk in front of me to consult as we talk, Babyology Volume 1. Uh, you call it an ant expansion of the Babyology series? Yes, you know, I have to be esoteric at every possible opportunity and as weird as possible, I guess. Um, yeah, so it's my second book. Long story short, I was, I was here for my first book, which was a very pleasing, great time. Um, the first book was really just a bunch of random stuff all together, which I loved. That's explicitly what it was with this one. I wanted to kind of pull the cord in in an extremely different direction. So it's really one series, one universe. It all goes together. Um, that's what makes this one different. That's why I called it that. It's a, it's sort of like the season one of a TV show. Honestly, that's really how I thought of it in my mind. But then there's also the expansion inside of it. There's like a hundred plus pages that I never showed anyone that are longer going into the themes more. Um, and yeah, I'm really pleased with how it came out, man. The response has been really great so far. So speaking about themes and doing a job or a good job coherently organizing it, setting arcs, uh, developing it like a story, because it truly is. 
leads me into something I kind of wanted to talk about up front. When we did Channel Zero two years ago already, I think it was, or year and a half, whatever it was, when that released, I was taking notes on it, going through it, preparing for this interview with you, and I found myself writing something down about every comic, and there was no way to just pack it down for me cohesively. And then you sent me this copy, and I started doing the same exact thing. I found, oh, I want to ask him this about this panel, and I want to talk about this one. And I realized that I was just taking notes on every single thing, and there's no way there will be time this evening for that. So maybe instead we could talk a little bit about your themes, about the topics you wanted to talk about by doing these comics in the first place. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I'm glad that you were... uh drawn into it that way. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, man, because on my end, you know, I sort of have a bird's eye view of the whole operation. Naturally, it's happening to me. And where the book really came from was me hitting this intersection where I, I hit this place where I was like, oh, all these things that I'm really obsessed with right now and that are happening to me tie together in this very interesting way. Um, it kind of reminds me of, honestly, just to make a weird parallel, um, a really, really long time ago, very early in my development, um, I read the book Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. And at that time, I was into psychedelics, art, and uh, what was the other thing? Psychedelics. Oh, oh, psychedelics, art, and religion. I was like, you know, in college at that time. And I read that book and I was like, oh, all these things intersect at this nexus that's very difficult to pin down, but it's right here. And actually, everything I'm into is really tied together in this very cohesive way. In a way, this book was really a manifestation of that same feeling. Um, I was hitting a lot of weirder Christian theology things. I was hitting classical Christian theology. I'm having a baby. I'm trying to figure out my place in these institutions, churches. You know, what church am I falling in with? That kind of places me in history in this way. And it just really all coalesce together. And that's really what the book is born from. There's a lot of threads in there, um, like ideas about, you know, where the soul comes from, and then I'm literally having a baby. Um, or, you know, the fact that I'm sort of this fringe character, hence I'm here on your show right now, um, and different groups in history and how that's played out. Being American is a big part of it, American Christian groups. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of threads in there, but that's really the nexus of it, that I was you know, literally like creating a life and also unpacking all of this theological stuff that dovetailed with it. That's basically what the book's about, really. And the doors of perception, I've been through that one myself. And I think a lot of people take that message away from it, uh, especially at that sort of time in a person's life. That's one that can really, you know, pardon the pun, but blow the doors off you when you first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And I guess that feeling blowing the doors off, it's a really good, uh, good way to put it. I really had that myself because it's not exactly explicit in the book. I guess it's a running theme in the book. Um, this is just like volume one. But I had that because I was going so deeply into classical theology, really, which I would, I would say is like Catholic theology, honestly. And I had the doors blown off. That's really just the perfect way to say it. Um, by going into a lot of the weirder Christian groups. 
Um, a lot of the Christian groups that come over that are uniquely American, that's a big part of the book. Um, just seeing things from a totally different perspective in terms of, you know, who God is, what his attributes are, what our relationship to him is. Um, that was a really crazy time in my life for sure. We could go into it. And, uh, that was like where the book really started in a way. So I would actually like to talk about that a little bit, but a sort of, it's related, but it's not quite the main theme question before we start that. I have not been so blessed myself with a wife and children yet, but my younger brothers each have children. So I've got some nieces and nephews and it's a running theme, especially in the early comics where you're sort of explaining these theological concepts to Owen Jr., as he's called. And I was just, I wanted to ask, is that something you actually do? Because I do that with my nieces and nephews, despite being babies themselves. I will talk about this stuff that's really just beyond them. They don't even speak words yet. So yeah. is, is that a real thing, or is that part of the way that you discuss these topics through your media? Um, some, some of it is imagined for the vehicle of the comics, but yeah, I actually do that. Um, in some of the comics, you know, he's literally like three months old, you know, but in real life now, yeah. Um, that's been one of the craziest parts of having a kid, honestly, is watching them scaffold and build these concepts um, it's really like watching someone put together their own like meta understanding of things. Like that sounds very abstract, but a tangible example is like, I remember when he picked up the concept of like negation. So he's like this, like the idea of this is not this thing or no, it's not that was like a whole week of his like mental development. You know, we'd be walking around, he'd see a car and he'd look at me and say like, that's not a dog. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, it's not. No, it's definitely not. And he's like, dog's not a truck. And I'm like, no, it's not. Um, so in that way, watching them scaffold the concepts has been like crazy interesting. And yeah, the religion thing has naturally come up. I wasn't sure how I would really introduce it to him. We're really into not exactly Waldorf education, but child development in this particular way, not like hitting them too early with things like reading and certain abstract concepts and stuff. But it really did come up naturally, man. I mean, like we saw like a dead animal on the street and he's like, what's that? You know, you can imagine naturally it's like, oh, well, it's dead. Like, what is that? Well, I guess it's like spirit isn't in its body anymore. Like, right. oh, what's that? And now we're having this conversation. Um, things like that. Yeah. Also with my art. I mean, he knew what a church was. We went to a church. He's like, oh, they have fancy windows here. Uh, we're sort of at that level. We're, we're exactly at that level like right now. <laughs> sure, sure. And, you know, as far as the Waldorf education goes, again, they're just nieces and nephews, but my brothers have kind of taken that same not-quite-Waldorf approach, and, you know, I've been pleased to be able to help the oldest of their kids sort of begin that process. I've got one niece that's just old enough to start helping Uncle Paz or helping, you know, Grandma Paz in the kitchen. She's got a little Waldorf-style knife set so she can start learning the concepts and explore that, you know, basic chemistry 
that is cooking with us without having to actually handle the food or handle the real tools herself. And uh, I guess I wouldn't know. I'm not an expert on child cognition, but it seems like it makes a difference. And I personally think it's a pretty good approach to take with children. Yeah, dude, it's super interesting. Uh, it's one of the main like anti-tech education things, I guess you could say like screen, you know, tech and everything. Right. But uh, it's also interesting because, yeah, it fits in with everything else because a lot of it is about meeting the kid where they're at. And the main overarching concept is like the kid really is in this kind of natural bubble of childhood and you try and facilitate that and not puncture it. Um, so yeah, it's super interesting. And then, yeah, like with all the religion stuff, you know, I mentioned it a second ago, but you know, the dead animal, it's a spirit. What's a spirit. It kind of folds into the religion thing because taking all the very heady philosophical metaphysical language that we normally deal with theology in, and then literally having to explain it to a kid is super interesting, man. It's super interesting, and I think also a useful exercise, because by being able to explain these concepts to a child, that's where a person's ability to actually evangelize in the definitional sense of the word really comes from. You know, once you can explain something to a child, you can explain it to almost anyone on the planet, and that too is a useful exercise. Yeah. I mean, honestly, man, that's a huge part of why a lot of the Mormon stuff, I've been talking about American religion and American religion is a huge aspect of what I do, but that's a huge reason why a lot of the Mormon stuff was like a battering ram into my scaffolding and explaining of things to myself. Because when you're dealing with classical theology or like academic theology or, you know, any kind of like, this is a big 900 page book kind of thing, it's like you're starting at one end and it's like, okay, here's Aristotle's metaphysics and here's how this relates to um, God's attributes. And if X is Y, then Y is Z. And you get, you know, 500 pages in, 600 pages in. Um, But the Mormon stuff really starts from the total opposite direction. It almost, not to speak down about it, it's actually kind of a benefit, but it starts from the other direction of like, how would you explain this to like a little kid? And Going into that, I got hit like like with a wall, man, because I had all these really crazy moments of like, you know, I'm in the Mormon world in the books and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. That's a totally interesting alternate explanation for that. But then when I'd come back to normal religion world, it was a lot harder to get answers, man. Like a really weird example is like, I actually don't know what your particular religious background is, like if you go into it, but you know, I have like Christian friends, right? You know, and I'd start asking them really basic, weird questions like, you know, what do you actually like literally think heaven is like? Like, what are we literally doing there, you know? And a lot of people would be like, I don't know. And I'm like, what? I mean, that's cool. You don't know. But like, isn't that like, you know, you, you start to feel like, oh, I've been in like the 301, 401, 501 PhD classes. And like, yeah. I actually have left some of like the really basic things uncovered here. Like what, dude? Um, I just had so many moments like that. And my wife and I almost went through this period of like, I don't want to call it obsession because it was a good time. But like whenever people would come to our house, like not even pushing anything, we would just ask them like, you know, uh, do you guys think you're going to be married like in the afterlife or like, and what does that look like? Or like all these questions, you know, really basic, not basic, but 
you know, tangible, tangible as things. Thinking yeah. about, right? Or yeah, man, like I realize people aren't thinking about rather. Yeah. So it was really interesting, man. And that's also a big part of like the psychological friction that the book was born from in a way. Cause I was like, wow, I'm like years deep in this stuff. And like, I'm actually just realizing that <laughs> I've left a lot of these bases uncovered, I guess. Uh, so yeah, man, that was like, that's like a super interesting, like sub narrative that probably isn't explicit in the book, but it's definitely there. I mean, to put it frankly, it's like I was talking to this crazy guy down the road and I was like, oh, that's really crazy. But then when I came back home, I was like, wait, so what's the real answer? And I'm like, I'm like looking around, I'm literally like turning over stuff and I'm like, wait, so like the real answer is here somewhere. Like, what is it? Um, I live for those moments myself. I really do. It's probably part of what makes me inclined to study the things I do, but I, I just live for that. It's not quite obviously a revelation or a revelatory experience, but it's that moment where it's like, oh, well, that's probably not the answer, but I wasn't even asking this question. No, and that's exactly what it's like. Yeah, dude, that's exactly what it's like. Yeah, and like using things as a foil in that way. I, it was like it was like two, two and a half years of my life where I was just like going totally nuts, like grinding so hard on that like every day. It's still kind of the main theme here, but like for a little while, it was like schizo. It was like a little bit like, <laughs> I was like, wow, I think I'm going crazy here or I'm like starting to figure something out. I really can't tell. So as much as I'd like to keep chasing that thread because I really enjoy that myself, uh, I'd like to rewind a little bit and stay on the topics we're talking about in that book. You brought up Mormonism and how Christianity has manifested in so many ways here in North America. Uh, Would you be willing to give us or give my audience a primer from your perspective on what makes American Christianity so unique, and then maybe talk about a couple of those branches it has manifested? Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. Um, Well, so, yeah. Basically, it is in the book, um, in a sense, but there's a larger aspect to it. You know, I can only like cram so much in there. But yeah, I had a really interesting time because I always had this sort of like untethered um, knot, kind of like an untethered juncture, I guess you could call it, where, you know, I know about Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Protestants and like Protestants started America, like I totally get it. You know, everyone knows that. But I kept hitting these like bumps in the road where I was like, you know, but like Martin Luther and Calvin and all those guys, they kind of really did adhere to like classical theology. And like, what's the connection between them and like evangelical mega churches and like, you know, American Christians, like the evangelicals, like they're not really like that. It just seems like it's a totally different thing. But I, I never really thought about it too much. I was like, well, you know, history develops, you know, whatever, all this stuff. Right. But uh, honestly, it was really all unlocked for me when I read this book called The Radical Reformation. Um, it was by the guy who this guy who coined the term The Radical Reformation. And basically his idea, dude, totally rewired my view of history and everything, man. It was crazy. It took me a long time to recover from, actually. But basically his concept is that I think his name's George Hunton Williams. I don't have the book in front of me, but it's close enough. Um, 
his idea that I think is, is missing from the popular conception of Christianity, 150 million percent. And I think it's correct is that it's kind of like a, like a, a Christian history red pill, maybe you could call it, but it's that in the Protestant reformation. So everyone knows, you know, there's like Martin Luther versus the Catholic church. And then you have Protestants versus the Catholic church. His idea is that it wasn't just a versus B. It wasn't Catholics versus Protestants. It was Catholics versus what I have to use as an academic term, magisterial Protestants versus the radical reformation. There was like a third team off on the side. So where, if I can interject just real quick here, you yeah. were saying earlier, you didn't really know my affiliation. Um, I'll throw it out there for the audience because most of them are pretty familiar with where I'm at. I am a confessional Lutheran for people who don't understand the use of the word confessional. That's the trad flavor of Lutheran. And to your point, that is pretty well taught in a lot of Protestant history and a lot of Protestant theology. Uh, Protestantism is obviously the furthest thing imaginable from a cohesive whole. So what you're talking about with the multiple teams, yeah, there's one team, and then the B team is not even a team itself. It's this fractal web of things that emerged outside of the sort of initial Protestant order that emerged. Yeah, that's so funny because, yeah, dude, as a confessional Lutheran, you would be the one who's always ha- always has to be like, whoa, 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 I'm not on their team exactly, you know? Right, right. <laughs> no, like, literally, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, so you know the deal. Yeah, yeah. So that piece of the puzzle that basically the way I conceptualized it was once the Protestant Reformation got like territory and kind of opened the box – I say this lovingly because I am a a weirdo freak type of character, but all the weirdos now had space to be like, oh, cool. Now we can really like break with tradition. Now we can really change it up. Now we can really start doing things super differently. Um, And those groups went around Europe getting killed by everyone, basically finally until they could come to America and take root. That would be like the way I would explain it to like a little kid, honestly. And I really do think that's super accurate. And once that clicked in my mind, I really couldn't unsee it. I've started to develop the narrative a little bit more because what I really think the difference is, to put it succinctly, is that I used to characterize it as like magisterial Protestants versus radical reformation, but it gets messy because then you're like, well, wasn't the radical reformation like Anabaptists and they're like Mennonites? So what are they like Amish or something? It kind of gets like messy Very for messy. people. So the way that I actually think that I I'm, would characterize it is that you have the reformational groups that are like, oh, we need to like climb inside this thing called the church and like reform it. Like we got to fix this thing over here and fix this thing over here, you know. But then you have what I would call like the restitutional groups who are like, no, dude, the whole endeavor here has been messed up. And we got to, we got to, I don't know if we got to rebuild it. I don't know if we got to tear it down, but, but the whole endeavor has just gone wildly off the rails somewhere. That is like the meta narrative of American Christianity, really, in my opinion. And the groups that come over, I think that they all have that shared meta narrative, whether they're actually associated historically or personally or anything deep down in like the programming of it is that somewhere along the line in history, things went so off the rails with the church that we're like, 
not starting from scratch exactly, but we're really like almost doing that. Once I saw that, I really couldn't unsee that. And I think that that explains a lot of things like where we started with this, with my little, my little walk here, like American evangelicals, you start to ask them about church history and not in a negative or like offensive way, but usually they're kind of like, I don't really think about that. They're like, that's not really part of my thing. You know, like if you start yeah, asking it's just evangelicals, not a relevant consideration for most of them. Yeah. And I realize that that's why, because they're, in my opinion, they're downstream of restitutional Christianity. That's like, yeah, all that stuff. I don't know if they would say it was a mistake, like come out swinging that hard, but it's like, that's just not part of the thing that we're doing. And that really explained a lot to me. The segue to the weirder American groups is that then you get all these fringe groups in America. I mean, I don't know if they're fringe. There's like millions of them, but like Mormons, Adventists, um, even Jehovah's Witnesses I'd put in there. Uh, any kind of uniquely weird American group. Evangelicals actually kind of are like that too. Um, they kind of take it to its logical conclusion. Let's let's back it up a little bit. Like Mormons, Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, all those groups. They're basically like, yeah, dude, like things went so off the rails that we're just scrapping it. We're scrapping all that stuff explicitly. Um, and once I started piecing that together, things started making a lot more sense to me. I'd ask people in real life, you know, what they thought about like church history, people that had never thought about it. It kind of felt like I was like gathering data <laughs> in this weird way. But to me, that is to answer your question in the shortest way possible, which was kind of long. Um, that idea is lurking deep in the backdrop of American Christianity. It's often lurking so deep that people intuit it or don't really think about it. But the idea that somewhere along the road in Christian history, things went wildly off the rails, like not just a little bit, but totally off the rails. And then we had to fix it. That to me explains why American Christianity is more unique, divorced from history. Some people would say that in a bad way or a good way. Um, it explains why it's just, there's something there. And to me, that was like part of it. So would you permit me to ask you a sort of chicken or the egg question that's directly relevant to this conversation? Oh yeah, for sure, man. We're talking about this. And do you think it is that sense of religion that shaped the nation and its culture? or being here separated from the old world that built that impulse into the religions we see here. Oh, dude. Um, man, chicken and egg is such a good way to characterize it. And if you don't have an answer, that's totally fine. But that's a question I find myself thinking a lot about. And I just, I don't have an answer for it because it's clearly one or the other, but I don't think that we ever could know which was the first mover against the other. So I yeah, was just kind of wondering if you even had an opinion at all. They really feed each other so hard. They go together. They're like, it's almost like one snake, like feeding itself on its tail. They're like so tightly wound. Um... That's interesting. What do I think preceded it? Uh, it's okay. My intuition is that it's hard for me to answer that because I think that when those groups were going around Europe being like, oh, 
finally we can actually read, I'm not saying this is correct, but finally we can just read the Bible and be totally divorced from all this baggage we've accumulated. I feel like that became inseparable from, okay, but where can we do this? And I feel like it became inseparable from that right at the get-go. Like even the Anabaptists, who by the metric of everything else aren't that weird, but relatively, I feel like first few decades, man, they were already like, do we need to go to like Transylvania? Do we need to go to Eastern Europe? Do we like, where can we just do our thing? That then when America opened up, let's say, it's just so intuitive to be like, oh, there it is. It's yeah. right there. That's that's, that's the what place. we've been waiting for. If we for. can survive the boats, they can't get us there. Yeah. So my answer to that is, it's, is maybe you can't say, but the founding and opening up of America just fits so perfectly into that religious narrative that, yeah, it feels like a chicken and egg. Maybe that's why. So the next question that relates again to that topic of Americana – America has its own thing and the religions it's manifested. I noticed that there is at least some time spent on the topic of Appalachia in the book and the unique culture and the religious culture that resulted from the culture. Oh, yeah. Now, we know demographically speaking, the people who settled Appalachia were the borderers and the mountain men and the hill folk of Europe. But does that reflect in the religious character, do you think? And this is, I guess, maybe a little bit outside the scope of theology, more into anthropology. But what, what's the connection there, I suppose, between the people and the religion that manifested? Yeah, man. Um, that's something also that I'm into. It, it does weave together with everything else. Um, there's a few things there. Um one is that I became very impressed by the mountains almost as like a force of, I want to use the right word here, maybe like insulation in like a positive way. Um, the fact that it really was like certain, even linguistic or religious, you said it butts up against anthropology. That's definitely true kind of went up in the mountains and were able to just be there and not be, um, it's hard to say this without sounding negative, almost like pushed along in a way. Um, to give an example, one of my favorite examples is from this book called um, Our Southern Highlanders by Horace Kephart. But he's like a, basically this nerd who goes to live in the Smoky Mountains hardcore in like the early 1900s. And he documents some linguistic stuff, like someone gets stabbed and this guy up in the mountain says he got feathered and he's like, Oh, this is literally like Shakespearean English. Like he got feathered. He got like stabbed. Like you get shot with a feather in an arrow. Um, and he's like, there's all these terms and language that basically were taken up into the mountains here that just were able to stay there for hundreds of years. And he like documents like all these really cool linguistic things like that. Feathered is my favorite example because the person saying it probably would never think of it. It's just part of their language. Um, in terms of the linguistic, I mean, in terms of the religious stuff, it's interesting because a big part of all this is like folk religion and the difference between like academic religion and the actual religion of the people. I think aside from my family ties and family history and things like that, that was part of why I got sucked into the Appalachian ethnography and religious ethnography specifically. 
because again, it sounds negative, but there's like no academic theology really. It's like the the people are just living their lives and having the religion. Um, and that became very interesting to me for the reasons we were talking about before. It's like, you know, here's this 900 page book by Thomas Aquinas, but what do like the Catholic grandmothers in the church actually think? Here's this huge gap. What does Absolutely. that mean? Yeah. So like, what does that mean? And then it makes sense then that I would be drawn to going further into a system where it's like, well, what if you don't have the academic theology class? What if it really is just the people? And it's not that they're, you know, obviously it's not that they're stupid. It's almost like they believe it more than some of the academics and theology people in a way. Well, you know, um, it's bone deep for them because they don't hold it in their mind. They hold it, you know, deep. Yeah, there's a really great book. It's called Better Felt Than Said. Um, it's about the holiness Pentecostal movement. Or not movement. It's about these two churches in West Virginia, really. Um, for a while, I got really into the books where it's like, here's this nerdy guy who goes to live just like with a bunch of people um, and write about them. And it was, I think it was in the 70s he wrote this book. But it's cool because he starts asking people all these questions, which is what I felt like I was doing in my own life. And one that really stuck out to me is he's talking to this woman, you know, you said it's like in their bones, you know, and she's talking about God and Satan and all this stuff. And, and he eventually asks her like, so if something happens, you know, how do you know if God did it or Satan did it? And she's like, uh, I never thought about that, you know, and he like, they get to this point where he's like, you know, well, how do you know if it's Satan or if it's God testing you or all this stuff? And she's just like, uh, I don't know. I never thought about it. Um, and things like that became very interesting to me also, sort of like the lived religion and what people actually think versus like the rule book of what you're supposed to think. You mentioned confessional Lutheran, you know, it's like every church has the rules on the wall. But then when you talk to people, sometimes it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah, man. So I suppose from there, I'm not sure where we even really take it that's exactly what i wanted to be talking about but you know what questions do you even ask because it creates this feedback loop where everything feeds everything else so i i guess to just re-splinter the conversation and start anew um in the studying that you've done what has been the most interesting group? What's the one that keeps catching your eye that you keep coming back to and asking more questions about them? Oh, dude, no contest. Mormonism, bro. More, dude, Mormonism is the, I don't even want to call it the elephant in the room, but something like that for, dude, I mean, just imagine being someone like me, you know, you're, you're obviously, clearly, maybe more so than me, into weird stuff, you know. So here I am and I'm like, well, I like Christianity. I like weird stuff, um, alternative ancient civilization stuff, everything like that. It's like you open up the box of Mormonism and you're like, what? Like this is in here? Like, dude, what? Um, I guess what I'm getting at is like, I use the term elephant in the room because the more you look into it, the more I'm like, how is this not on more people's radars you talk to someone who's into like esoterica and like secret society stuff their whole life usually they've never thought about mormonism which is like homegrown american esoterica hardcore that dovetails with freemasonry and its history in a way um 
ancient civilization stuff. Like if you start digging into mound builders and like things like that, dude, usually the guys writing those books are Mormon because they're the ones who are into alternate histories of Native Americans. I don't know if people know, but that's like partially what the Book of Mormon is about. Um, the lost so much, tribes dude. ending up in America, right? Yeah, so much. So I could keep, I could just like keep going, but that's definitely the thing that I never came back from, to be totally honest with you, because I really opened the door to it being like, oh, it's like leave it to Beaver. Like this will be like kind of funny and interesting for a minute and then I'll like move on. Um, but it really is a totally alternate American theological system that people honestly don't know about for a variety of reasons. I have my own theories as to why. Um, but it's just like you, you pick up a stone and there's like a freaking mountain underneath, dude. Um, that's, a, that's, that's the one I never came back from for sure. That's the one where I was like, oh, this is actually like <laughs> – I'm not coming back from this one. Yeah. So – that that would get us totally off the rails, but the mound builders and ancient civilization is a huge topic on my program, and it's not what we came here to talk about. But if I could get some of your thoughts on all of that, I think you are adjacent enough to those spaces and have spent enough time on it. Uh, you know, just tell me a little bit about what you think the real history of ancient America was. Where are you at on all that? Oh, man, um, I'm basically totally in on the big, like, epic ancient civilizations thing. That's been a huge part of my, frankly, like, life and development. Um, I feel like one of the ways that I really got ushered into the hardcore, like, paranormal, esoterica style stuff was Atlantis. I was really into that for a while. Um, especially the earlier guys like before plate tectonics and those theories developed where they really were using the story of Atlantis to explain like cultural similarities and things like that. Like um, Edgar they, Casey and all of them. Um, are you saying man. the ones even before that? Yeah, no, before that. Yeah. Like there are some books, there's one book called the history of Atlantis. There's a few others, but they're really almost like anthropologists who are like, oh, why are these tools so similar? Why are there these similar developments? And they're like, oh, there must have been some missing ancient civilization. Um, oh, maybe it was something like Atlantis or something like that. Um, but yeah, as for like the real history of the Americas, I don't know, man. Honestly, my narrative would just be the general weirdo paranormal meta narrative. I mean, Vikings coming over, I'm all in. Europeans coming over earlier, I'm all in uh missing ancient civilizations similar to Atlantis or something like that. Yeah, I'm basically all in on that also. Uh <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. Are you then familiar again, we're going far afield here, but this is one of my favorite topics, so I'm gonna pick your brain about it anyways. Uh are you familiar with the Roman coin caches that were found off the coast of Brazil and all of that? No, I have gone into some artifacty stuff and zoomed in on a few particular artifacts, but not that. No. Was that recent or is that like classic? Oh, that was, it must've been the seventies and then it wow, just never, never came that? up again. But... Wow. How have I never seen that? That's crazy. So it's straight up Roman coins off Brazil. Yeah. And you know, it's attributed to things like, 
Oh, they were still in circulation in Italy as the explorers began to go out. Which, you know, sure, probably, maybe, could have been. And, you know, it's attributed to things like, okay, well, ocean drift over so many centuries, it could maybe carry them so far as that. And it's just the sort of explanations that are super unsatisfying to a mind like mine, where there's the curiosity that's also warped by inherent institutional distrust. Yeah, for me, my style was more finding like one specific artifact and being like, okay, this does not fit the narrative and then working backwards from there. Actually, it's funny because that's kind of my style and like everything, I guess, is just like obsessively fixating on one thing that doesn't make sense and then working backwards into a larger narrative. Um, For me, I got more into like jade knives and stuff like that. I don't know if people, I don't know how popular or common it is to talk about, but I think down in like Australia or Papua New Guinea, they found these like super ancient jade knives. And the thing about jade that's interesting is that jade is actually two different stones. Every deposit of jade is like super different, basically. Um, So you can look at them and tell where they came from. And I think it's at the Natural History Museum in New York City that they have one. But there's this knife they found in a swamp in like Papua New Guinea there that came from like northern Mexico or something and it's so old yeah it's something like that and it's so old that they're like well you know maybe uh you know um like you just said you're like yeah well i guess this could have happened in a typical way but probably not um yeah things like that are super interesting to me i also got turned on to that via things like easter island and stuff which everyone obviously knows about um but i spent some time on this project working with a lot of that like informational stuff And just because of how small it is and that they found it, I'm sure you guys are like familiar, obviously, but the idea of a global spanning ancient civilization, I mean, for me, that's like wired in now, basically. All right. Well, I'll throw you one more curveball and I am going to broach the question of the giants then, the ancient giants. Is that something you've gotten into at all? Um... Not that hardcore. Sure. Uh, that I guess one might be guess, a little bit more cryptozoological, a more true mythological for your tastes. I I hit it because <laughs> I guess it, it's kind of funny. I hit it because not out of the um, normal track, I guess you could say, but more out of the like museum and institution skepticism thing. I kind of took like that highway through alternative history mm-hmm. and scientific uh what's a positive form of like denying science like a scientific questioning and stuff like that i took that highway really hard and of course along the way you're like smithsonian giants you know all that stuff sure uh and I but it took wasn't some- that exit pretty hard myself and that's why i asked the question at all you know i hit exit two there off the interstate and i stayed in town <laughs> yeah man yeah for me i mean i'm down to, i'm definitely down to talk about whatever for me that really hit like the dinosaur bones thing and i kind of hit that a lot more than the giants thing it's just like where i was at and what i was actually like physically around at that time in my life um but yeah i mean i'm definitely down to talk about it if you want we could talk about whatever but that was my more like questioning history and history narratives thing for sure 
Sure. And you know what? Maybe we'd have to save that for the future. We're actually already <laughs> coming up against the time I allot for these interviews. Cool, so man. Cool. If you wanted to, I don't know, give your plugs, talk about some of the stuff you are doing, will be doing, anything you want to do to promote yourself for a couple of minutes here. Yeah, man. Um, well, I am mostly active on Twitter. It's at Owen Broadcast, but I'm basically everywhere else also. Instagram. I can't imagine your user base overlaps with Tumblr very heavily, but if you're on there, I'm pretty much everywhere. <laughs> uh, but Twitter's the main hub. Um, yeah, I run the illustration studio. You can see how we're talking here. All these topics are basically what I do and deal with in my art, comics, things like that. Um, I do everything from sort of like newspaper style comics, honestly, all the way up to like big, very intricate graphic visual things. Uh, the last big visual thing I dropped was the Catholic liturgical calendar. Uh, people were really into that, but I will say it's super on your wheelhouse. The next big thing that I'm working on that I'm only showing kind of like behind the scenes now uh, on my Patreon, not to plug, but it's just part of the story. No, that's the thing here. Plug away, please. Yeah. I'm on Patreon. Uh, people pay to see like what's going on behind the scenes and to help me run my operation here. Um, I am making this, it's basically like an esoteric map of the world. I'm not sure exactly what I'll call it, but since the last big project was a wheel of the year, a map of time, I decided to do a visual literal map. And yeah, man, it's going really well. Uh, it's really kicking back on a lot of the fuses that I haven't poked into for a little while. I really have been in hardcore like theology world. That's where I live. But yeah, I'm doing this world map of basically anything relevant to being an insane fringe individual. That's what I wanted to call the map, but I don't know if I could market it that way. <laughs> so yeah, man, literally stacked up next to me. I have all these like paranormal atlases of the world and like notes about like megaliths and all this stuff. Um, so it's very much so in your guys' wheelhouse. Uh, and yeah, I just do my thing out here at my little mystical propaganda art studio. <laughs> so yeah, Twitter is my main spot and I'm everywhere else also. And that's basically the whole story, man. On Patreon. Oh, and the book. And the book. Yep. Yeah, I'm on Patreon. And yeah, if you came this far, you'd probably enjoy the book. It's a great gift for any weird people, uh, but you would probably like it also yourself if you came this far. It's on Amazon. It's called Babyology. My name's Owen Cyclops. And yeah, man, this was super fun. Thanks for having me on. I feel like, honestly, I feel like this is one of the times we could just kick it for like four or five hours just like talking so we absolutely could but i'm not going to do that to my audience i care about <laughs> yeah. them too much to ask them to sit through it in one piece <laughs> yeah uh, man is amazon the best place to buy your product yes it is uh i know that dealing with the uh you know mechanistic corporate sludge overlords is unideal so I'm, i am working on it but right now it's scale since i have the baby and the dog that's the way I get it out there right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we're funneling people to the right place, you know? Yeah, for sure. And my website's owencomics.com. So that's like the other place too. Uh, and yeah, man, that's the whole story, dude. It's really, it's really awesome to be uh, roped into your vibe here, man. Uh, I really enjoyed hanging out with you. Very good. I'm flattered you would say that. It was wonderful to talk to you again. And who knows, maybe we'll do it again sometime in the future then, huh? Yeah, for sure, man. I'll hit you up when I drop the uh, schizo world map. <laughs> that sounds perfect. All right, sir. Have a wonderful night. Audience, thank you for sitting in with us. I hope you enjoyed. And please, buy his book. 
Buy two, put one on your coffee table. Buy ten and use them as stocking stuffers next Christmas. They're wonderful. (laughs) You won't regret it.